0: I have a real blind spot with being judged, but I think about it for like half a second, you know, and I just move on. I was born without a rearview mirror. It's great for a lot of things. I'll admit it, it's difficult with others. I have to be more empathetic because most people don't have that gene, but it's enabled me to press forward because I'm just always facing straight ahead.
1: Next guest has the number one ranked marketing podcast, which just caught my attention immediately because naturally questions are like, What would you do to be so popular? So, my my guest, his name is Ryan. So, Ryan, for people who don't know who you are, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of your story, please?
0: Chris, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. I'm I'm Ryan Alford. I'm the host of the Radcast. We are the number one marketing and business show on Apple. And you know, it's an interesting story, Chris. It follows a lot of uh, what you talk about with personal branding. I did a lot in my career. I've been in in the marketing and ad agency business for twenty years. I'll age myself a little bit, even though my uh, Caldera skin cream, who's one of our sponsors, killed the bags <laughs> away. Uh, but <laughs> I'm a marketer, Chris. You know, don't you know? Okay. Don't hate the player, hate the game. The uh, <laughs> but it, look, if you know, I'm going to give you. Uh, Can you hear me? Five words. Can you hear me now? Uh, That was the first campaign I worked on for Verizon Wireless. I've worked on every major smartphone campaign in the history of wireless. The first iPhone launch. um, Creatively, strategically worked on it with Apple. Every BlackBerry launch. The Droid. The first anti-iPhone campaign. Worked in Manhattan. Largest agencies in the world. On some of the largest tech brands, Samsung Apple, Amazon, Verizon, Google. So really ushered in the smartphone era, working on the marketing campaigns for some of the most iconic devices ever. Sold over 500 million smartphones with campaigns uh, that I worked on. And, you know, have had a career in the marketing side that kind of started there. But I came out of all that, Chris, and no one knew who the hell I was. And started three things at one time about 6 years ago and they've all been on the same trajectory my personal brand the radcast and my agency radical and so have devoted to all three of those the last 6 years and now we're an eight figure agency the radcast is number 1 in marketing and business and my personal brand has done okay so it's um it's mm. been a wild ride but it uh you know somebody's got to do it
1: <laughs> Why not you? <laughs> and you do that all with a little southern charm, as I can hear in your voice there. Oh you yeah, can't recognize that from
0: South Carolina, baby. I was a you know the southern
1: kid in <laughs> <Represent>. New York,
0: <laughs> trailblazing in Manhattan.
1: Okay. All right, all right. So I used to work in advertising myself, and there are many roles in which one plays. I just want to, just for the record, uh, just ask you a little bit there, because I worked on the design production side. So when the agency would come up with the, the creative brief, they would ask us to pitch creative ideas and we would do that. What did you do in those agencies where you are helping to launch all these uh, phone campaigns? Are, are you the, I don't know, tell tell me, what, did, what role did you play specifically?
0: I'm a hybrid chameleon. So I started, you know, agencies like to put people in boxes. So I started in account management and mm-hmm. then got into more of a strategy, new business, and always had a creative flair to me. So, uh, luckily, I worked at an agency that allowed that to blossom. Definitely played more in the strategy account management side, but I've always been a good writer and did develop, um, got to where I was developing campaigns, kind of bring it all together full circle in working directly with clients. And so, I wore a lot of different hats over my 20 plus years and... I mean, I would dare say in in today's environment, I play more creative director than anything else. Uh, like mm. at my agency, strategy creative director, I kind of wear both of those hats. I'm, uh, you know, maybe one of those few that kind of has a left brain, the right brain. I, I watch an ad and I, and I literally think I can see the creative brief. I see the creative brief and I can, you know, I think in headlines. So it's like, <laughs> it's a little bit of both, baby.
1: Okay, so it sounds to me like you are that hybrid person that you have this writing creative bone, but you came up through the agency world through the account management strategy side, right? Yes. Okay, I got to ask you this question because I remember this campaign. I'm also old enough, and I think I'm older than you, but we'll get into that later, is the Can You Hear Me Now? Which at first I was like, that's it? That's a campaign? And then it becomes a thing. Tell me about the inspiration behind that. Where did that come from? Like, tell me the business insight or how y'all developed that and how it turned into that tagline with that spokesperson.
0: Yep. So marketing at the highest level comes down to two kind of categories. So there's CDI and there's BDI. And in 2001, the wireless industry was in a nascent period, very early. So your brand mattered, but it didn't. What mattered was defining the category. And the category of cell phones was educating people why they needed it and why cell service mattered. And those things had started to come together. Okay, I need a cell phone. This is around two ninety 2000. we go from bag phones to f- flip phones and all these things. But then it, there were pain points, consumer pain points, very clear consumer pain points early on in wireless in the category, which were, reliability. And it was always about how do we translate having better reliability, and this was working with Verizon Wireless, in the strategy and the known pain point, the consumer behavior, which was telling us the pain point was my cell phone does not work where and when I need it to. And the transcendent line, which came out of that, which personified everyone's pain because everyone at this point, this is before smartphones, this is before I'm doing even text messaging. Your number one focus is call quality and going through and it working where you need it to. Everyone had in their vernacular when someone you picked up the phone in 2000, can you hear me now? Like, can you hear me now? You're trying to find that spot, that location where people worked. And everyone resonated with that line. And literally it came out of you know, I remember being like written on the board and then it got, it made its way into one commercial and then it took a life of its own. You know, it's like one of those things. But it, but it was from that consumer insight of, I now know I need a cell phone, but now it's clear that not all cell phones work ubiquitously. And it became the vernacular with which people naturally said. So having that test man who's testing the network quality, who's personifying the reliability that Verizon was building by testing and retesting, saying those things that everyone else said, it, the rest is history.
1: Yeah, I love that. So you touched on a pain point that was a vernacular, something that we all said, like you'd move into the corner of the bathroom, like, can, can you hear me now? Like, and and <laughs> you're right, I remember those days. And that was the biggest pain point, which is how many dead spots are there? And can I make a call and receive a call from my home? And people would talk about the widest network. And the can he, can you hear me now with your your everyday person who wound up being the spokesperson for a gazillion years? Like how long did that guy wind up, I don't know the actor's name, but how long did he wind up being the spokesperson for Paul. Verizon?
0: Um, and I'm Paul. just old enough, and it's been just long enough to forget Paul's name. Uh, it was right at 12 years. So it was... A long time. Wow. And it under the umbrella, he was used heavily for about seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. It died off as the smartphone came around. Um, and mm-hmm. that and the and the networks got better and it was less about you know the quality of of that. It was trying to find a home for him with network quality with data was always a struggle. But he was obviously, you know, tied to the brand. And I will say this: I had moved on with working on other pieces of business, but someone left a clause out that allowed him to move over to Sprint. Like they had tied him up and paid oh, him, my gosh. but there was like a certain clause that was in one of the contracts. Luckily it wasn't one we negotiated that left that opening because he they didn't intend for him to ever be able to go to another wireless network. And then if you remember, right. Sprint got him for a couple of years and, you know, he was touting their network quality. I don't know if it ultimately ever moved the needle for them. It was more just embarrassment for Verizon, I think, that he was uh, on someone else. But uh, yeah, the insider backstory there.
1: That's why I felt like he had a longer life than 12 years because I feel like I still see him from time to time. And it's remarkable there. (laughs) A couple of real quick questions to follow up. You mentioned CDI and BDI. I'm unfamiliar with those terms.
0: Yeah, category development and brand development. So, that's old school marketing man. It's like here's what happens. And it's even true today. The best marketers will tell you if you romance the category, you can win the brand game. So the the who pays most homage to category development can win the brand game. What does that mean? Well, you know if you think about Uber coming around, right? So, the category of taxi direct through app without the friction of having to be a yellow cab that you have to call on your phone or hope that if you're in New York City, so Uber started a whole new category, and when they when all their marketing came out, all they they didn't talk about oh, we're uber we we're the best taxi delivery service no they they magnified the category of on-demand car service. And so when you do marketing, you have a 100% budget, right? So whatever that budget is, 100%. Category designers would tell you that 70% should be in category magnification, discussion, instead of brand. You know, like, instead of saying, my brand, Nike, you know, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk more about the sport or whatever it might be, the category underneath it. He who owns the category, the brand will rise accordingly. Does that make sense? It does. And so when I came up, it was all we always talked about, you know, CDI and BDI. And you do research, the research studies we would do would be underneath, you know, who was owning category, who was owning brand, and share of voice, share of market, those types of things.
1: Okay, more threads are opening up here. I wanna close a couple before I move on to the next thread, which is based on the things that you're talking about here. When you were doing this, uh, coming up with this uh, insight for Can You Hear Me Now? What agency was that at that you were
0: with? I worked for Hill Holiday and Irwin Penland. Hill Holiday was out of Boston. It was uh, also worked with McCann. Um, It was McCann Erickson, then became McCann, Mm -hmm. then it became McCann something else. we there was a there was about eight agencies that worked with Verizon Wireless across the country, and mm-hmm. a lot of times it was as they would bring all the agencies together. I mean, it was kind of like they they pitted us against each other at certain times. They brought us together at other times. It was uh, an interesting dynamic.
1: Lastly, were you did you have any role in casting Paul for that role of the King? No, hear me I now.
0: had no part in that. I did not have part in that. So uh, okay. that was uh. Outside of my realm, but uh, it was, uh, and it was the perfect casting. Though he, you it know, was he had the exact look of someone you thought that would be a guy <laughs> like testing a network and drive. You know, he was yep. He, he was kind of the every man, but a, a little nerdy, techie. You know, like mm-hmm. and so, but approachable. So he, mm-hmm. he was perfect. That's how I describe him exactly, without even knowing the
1: casting specs. Every man, kind of good looking, friendly, relatable, not too nerdy that would annoy you. Exactly who you think he should be. Yep. Now, I want to talk about Mr. Shoe Dog, Phil Knight, and, and Nike, because you brought up Nike, and you said most marketers will tell you to do the category, spend your marketing budget on category-defining versus brand. How do you break up Nike today? Are they more brand-centric or category-centric? It
0: would probably surprise you that it's it, it tends to lean towards category, uh, mm. but— it's definitely gone more towards brand for them over time because these categories aren't, and just to be clear, most marketers don't talk about it the way I'm talking about it. Don't talk okay. about category. They talk about performance marketing and they talk about all these buzzwords that are now because they yes. don't understand the, these things that we're talking about right now. Or they don't you know, have the background and understanding of how this works. The category designers talk about it and that's a very few small bunch, the best of which is Christopher Lockhead. He is the originator of category design. But I'll say this, Nike was definitely heavy, heavy category, believe it or not, even just do it became their tagline, but was in a way an empowering statement underneath the category of sport. And so they now I think are, you know, probably 55, 45 brand uh, versus category but the, it it was at one time it was probably 70/30 category versus brand but now like it, it nike is a, a difficult one to have this discussion on because they're so big and so ubiquitous of, as a brand you know that it can mm-hmm. get hard to delineate which one is which category versus brand
1: um now you've spent 20 plus years inside the ad world as a marketer as uh, as an account director, strategy person, also with copywriting, is it safe to say you're a ad nerd? Like oh, you? yeah.
0: Absolutely. Because okay.
1: I want to I geek out with you for yeah. a little bit. Is that okay? Oh, 100%. So there are certain brands that always come up in discussion as shining examples of how you build a multi-billion dollar brand. The two that come to, straight to mind, or the three are Nike, or four, Nike, Apple, Patagonia, and Tesla. Yep. And when I sit down and I try to say like, this is what Nike sells. Nike sells you shoes, but that's not what you buy. You buy something else, this feeling, this idea, this connection to something much greater than just a pair of shoes because for which you have a lot of choices for. So how would you describe what people buy when they buy a pair of Nikes?
0: People think with their head and they buy with their heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're emotionally driven animals. I mean, it started like we told, we've already, you know, broken some of the ice here with just do it. The empowering statement with which they started, want to be like Mike, you know, you want to be like Mike and uh, Michael Jordan, uh, that campaign. I'm really 80 myself. That's early 80s, 85, I, 84, 85, be like Mike. And, that, and, you know, like, but just do it with him. And then be like Mike was actually under the Gatorade. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then like... It, but it's all tied to Michael Jordan because all the, every kid wanted to be like him. And so that, there's your original influencer. We used to call them spokespersons. Uh, <laughs> now they're influencers. Everybody is. But in all seriousness, like building brand is an emotional exercise in consumer behavior and understanding what those things are. So like now I have kids and all my kids want Nikes. They, you know, the, the brand game, the shoe game, You know, but it's because they've built the cachet. But it's an emotionally driven thing because they want their friends to like them. Their friends like Nike's because they've been conditioned to believe that's what their peer groups know, like, and want, right? And that's built the brand that Nike has created, the mantra, the aura that they've built that drives that emotional connection to it. But it it still comes back to some very basic human things, which is, you know, I want to be liked by others. So if I wear Nikes and others value Nike, then they'll like me too, right? But it's these emotional triggers that the best brands in the world do. But it's usually guided, Chris, by amazing product too. Like, I mean, think about the companies you just named, Apple, Tesla, and even Nike. I mean, their product quality has always been top notch it, it, for most things tesla the first you know electric cars that really were viable and sexy and you know all the things are but and the secrecy behind it and everything that elon musk did that made it desirable but but it's an amazing product right it's an amazing customer experience apple you know we always think it's well, okay the iphone and the imac and the apple pro it is but it's the ecosystem right? The reason the iPhone was the best and greatest smartphone of all time is because they tied it all together. They made it super simple for grandmas and grandpas and kids and everyone else to use a smartphone and to make that a necessity in your life because of the ease and the ecosystem that they built with all of the apps and all of it tied to there and the total customer experience. If you look at those brands, there's usually a customer experience portion that make up the affinities with those brands.
1: I want your expert opinion on this, uh, getting back to Nike, because I will tell people like, okay, so you, you, um, they, they produce a shoe, but you buy something different. And then I ask people in an audience, what are, what are you really buying? They're like, well, the best, most technical shoe. I'm like, mm, let's keep trying. You're buying cash And then day. after a while, I think what what the just do it thing in their campaigns as a student of advertising myself is that they're selling you this message that within each of us lives an athlete, whether you're out of shape, whether you're a kid or you're an Olympic medalist, that's what binds us together. And then when it comes to Apple, I agree with you. I think Apple produces the ecosystem, but I think what we buy is a status, a cachet that I am saying transmitting to the world. I have good taste. And I can afford this.
0: Yes. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that was the way it was, certainly. It, I, it's still that way now, but I think yeah. certainly five, 10 years ago, a 100% with Apple, that was definitely mm-hmm. that status symbol. I feel like some of that's eroded a bit, because I do think mm-hmm. they're now in line with PC costs. Their computers are. The iPhone and the, the Samsung and everything else are priced the same, and the feature sets have diminished, like model after model. Like, The new feature sets, like when you think about like when Apple was coming out with new feature sets five, seven, eight years ago, they were big leaps. Now these leaps have gotten smaller. The prices are more in line with other things. So I I think that you're right as a whole, you know, if you look at the history of the brand, I think you're 100% Mm -hmm. on. I think some of that's diminished now and it is more about you know, ecosystem, ease of use, and some of these other things that, with the brand experience as a whole, that are that started to take, you know, foothold to why the brand is still so relevant.
1: Mm. And whenever I go to the mall and I I cross the Apple Store versus say the Microsoft Microsoft Store, no shade thrown, it's a completely different experience, and you can tell by the number of people in the store. And <laughs> for whatever reason, the obsessive nature of the the Apple people in terms of like thinking through every single bit and how they've evolved and changed so quickly where you can go in, basically every single person who works at an Apple store can ring you out. So what could be a a logjam of frustration uh, is a pleasant experience. And everything from the unboxing, pulling it out, the way that I hear from uh, cardboard engineers, how they engineer to make a very specific sound when you pull that box open, that's attention to detail that most people don't know, but they feel. Yeah. Conversely, I remember a couple of years ago going to the X uh, or Microsoft Xbox store to buy something. There's nobody in the store, there's like three customers, and I'm waiting in line 20 minutes. This is ridiculous. It's a very frustrating experience. Why why don't companies get this that if you give people an an amazing experience, they remember it? Why can't they why aren't they so easily duplicated and copied in the marketplace? What do you think makes them so different?
0: I think that it comes down to like some rudimentary things like the decisions that it takes, the bravery that it takes to invest in that total experience. It's now easy for Apple to do it because they've done it and they've proved it. But that's where it took Steve Jobs' bravery and guts and chutzpah. When he did this, when no one else would, when Windows Phone and BlackBerry and or Microsoft or whoever would not have done these things, they would, not, they would have laughed him out of the room to spend the money on that customer experience, on the boxes and all that stuff. He had the, the bravery to do that. And even now, I think when people try to duplicate it, you can see where those things push over. No, they're it's like, you'll see the boxes and like the experience. And it's never quite as good as the Apple experience. They clearly are trying to copy it, but they take shortcuts you know, you can see where they like, okay, this, the cardboard is a little nicer and it's got the little flap that you pull on. And then you're like, right. you're sitting there and you're still pulling it harder than you want to. And then it like breaks or something. And you're like, you can tell they tried to, but they took a shortcut somewhere. And, mm. but, only, but Apple's still one of the few that delivers it from top to bottom. And a lot of that becomes just execution. And, you know, you can all talk about it we can all do it, but at the end of the day, you got to execute and you got to have the precision and the people and the processes to make that happen. I mean, I say the same thing, every not every day, but I have children and I'd, I'd love to say I never eat fast food. But if you live in the South or live somewhere where there's a Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A's excellence in drive through and management, why can't that be duplicated at, Ver- at McDonald's or Burger King or whatever? You know, at Chick-fil-A, it's always my pleasure. You know, my pleasure. Right. It's like a total right. different customer experience that doesn't seem to be able to be duplicated.
1: It's true. And there's the cult of Chick-fil-A because every time you go there, there is a line. And it's it's a massive line, but you're okay with it because they, they've expedited as much as they can. And
0: they've convinced moms that it's healthier than McDonald's when really it probably right. isn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a fried chicken sandwich? Come on. Let's yeah, get exactly. Right and a try, Right.
2: Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation.
1: Let's shift gears. You talked about a couple different companies. Radical is your agency. Radcast, which I really want to talk to you about, is your podcast number one ranked podcast for marketing and business on Apple. Here's the thing: this is an enviable position to be in. And I I checked your chart just right before we got on. I think you slipped to number two, but just to even be in the top five is an amazing feat. A couple of questions for you: Why did you start the podcast?
0: I have been podcasting for 10 years. Like I, I did one, I, I saw the medium, like 2014, I did like a car show that had like 50 listeners, but it was hyper niche, but, and I've always liked the medium and believed in the medium from, from I was a, you know, whatever you call it, early adopter of the medium, both listening and, you know, playing with them. And when I started my agency, uh, it's kind of the the same the, – it's the same answer for p- personal branding and anything else. I saw the groundswell coming, and I believed in and knew – and I actually own the trademark for it pays to be known. And so how better to elevate my persona – if I've been so slack in it, I've done these amazing things and I'm tired of hearing about marketing gurus and ninjas on Instagram that have done nothing that I compared to what I've done in my career. And I'm not mad at them. I'm mad at myself. I got to get out there and share my knowledge, but do it in a different way. And I just wanted to have a platform to, to share knowledge, to grow awareness for myself and in in knowing that that would bring opportunities. And I wanted to build relationships with some of the amazing guests that you see behind me on the wall because I know that relationships create opportunities. And so that's what it's done.
1: So what year did you launch? You said you're like 400 episodes in or something like that. What year did you launch the, the Red
0: 2018. Cast? So we're, uh, we're in year six of the show but we started at the early 2018, like February 2018. You've been busy. Yeah, we produce two shows a week and sometimes we record a lot more than that. I also have a secondary show now called The Vacay Podcast, but uh, it's a health and wellness show. But yeah, man, it's been good though. And I've met a ton of people and it's opened a lot of doors.
1: Mm, I love that. Okay, let's get to the part where when did it start to connect where you start moving up the charts? Because to get featured on the top 100 and then top 20 and something has to happen here. So what insights can you share with people who are trying to grow their personal brand to to cash in on this idea that pays to be known?
0: <laughs> I joke and it's maybe getting long in the tooth, but I love to say it. It was an overnight yeah. success in six years. I'm gonna tell your people, the listeners and the viewers and everyone else, probably something they don't wanna hear, but it takes time. Like the first 50 people, like I had probably 50 to 100 listeners the first six months of my show. And 49 of them were my mom, my dad, and three of my cousins. <laughs> like they're like, hey, we really, really like that episode. And I was like, did you hit play more than once? Yeah, I had to listen to it like 12 times. I was like, okay, that's what <laughs> Now I'm like counting how many plays I've had. And I'm like doing the math, and I think, I had four organic plays if I took away, like, you know, the family members that had listened. Uh and look, here's what happened. Okay. I went big immediately, like probably six months in. I go, I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna invite big guests. I've got no credibility. Like, I had credibility as a person. My personal yeah. brand was starting to grow a little bit. And I had mm-hmm. done all the things that we've been talking about on this show. So I had credibility and connections to make those phone calls or DMs or whatever it might be. And I'm like, wait a second, I, I don't wanna play small anymore. Like the first six, eight months of the show, I just played small ball. And I'm like, I really don't have to play small ball. <laughs> like, you know, the show, I, I and so I took on the persona of we're gonna go big. And I devoted to two episodes a week. I asked, you know, all the way from Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix who came on my show very early on to, you know, it snowballed from there. And I just always, you know, played at a bigger level than we were necessarily at and started to just say, if I don't believe it, then no one else will. And look, here's what happens when you do 400 shows, you get better at it. <laughs> they get, the shows get better. You go, I mean, I keep a few of them up. We've removed some of them because they just didn't make sense to the library anymore. But, you know, go listen to an episode 40 and go episode less than three, you know, I'm better on the mic. I'm better at asking questions. The guests are better. And the process and everything sounds and looks better. So it was an evolution. But but if I was going to give someone advice, and this is and we work with personal brands and podcasts now that we manage, go big. Don't go small. And look, I wanted to be, I could have been top whatever in some niche. It took me longer. Because we played the kind of the mainstream education entertainment route with the show. I didn't come on and just go heavy. Today we're gonna learn about SEO and this SEO tactic, you have to get after. You know, it just it was a it's an entertaining marketing and business show. If you listen to our Friday episodes, we cut it up, we have fun. But if you really listen, you take away some marketing knowledge too. So it's very much edutainment. And But that, so that took a lot, that was a longer fuse to build an audience. But then once that fuse got going, referrals and other things happened, but it's just been a, it's been a climb, man. I mean, when you go from top 200 to top 150, I mean, you know, the last, I will say like the last eight months, we've gone from like top 40 to, to number one, like it's snowballed because I think of just once you kind of get to a certain position, it starts to take on a life of its own on some level so here's what i got from you so far helps
1: to be in a big family that loves and supports you the bigger the family the better (laughs) get you off the ground so your ego doesn't take a huge hit right thanks mom thanks dad and cousin vinny whatever (laughs) uh so you have a really big family in the south you're good next is you said um if you're gonna do this do it with all of your heart all of your might don't be shy about reaching into your vast network of people that you know, and getting on the phone or emails and hitting up people that you think would make a better guess. The next insight was, you got to do the reps, put in the reps, You you what you repeatedly do, you improve upon. So it takes two, 300 episodes for you to find your your sea legs, if you will, and become good at being a host. But something has happened in the last eight months. Do you attribute it to anything else besides you being a better host, the repetition? Uh, the deep catalog, uh, the kinds of guests that you're getting? Have you done anything else that is really, that you can attribute to, like how we get from top 100 to top 20 to number one?
0: Heavy relationships. I've leaned and into relationships that I've made and gleaned from this and been more intentional in the development of those relationships. And I think it's gotten me on different stages, different platforms, different shows. And, you know, it's the gold rule. Like I've I've been very intentional the last eight to 12 months about being very giving of my time, my energy, and like trying to spread it around and to not make it so transactional. And I think that is paid dividends.
1: Next thing is... There are thousands of people, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who have a podcast who never really make a dent. They're still stuck in the, I got hundred downloads per episode. What do you think makes you so unique? What is it about you that people are drawn to, that listen to this organically, who enjoy the conversations with you? And you don't need to be humble here. Just like, really, let's call it out. What do you bring to the table that makes you, you? And what's your secret sauce?
0: Uh, you know, I, you, you you said at the I mean, I'm a, I'm a Southern guy and there's an authenticity I think that comes with that, that, and I'm real. Like I'm not, there's not, you're not going to find, I've never someone gone, very few people are walking and go, you remind me of, (laughs) you know, like I don't, I can't think of the last time those words were uttered and I'm just different. I think I've, I have this worldly edge to me, but I'm a Southern guy, you know, like I've, lived in Manhattan and LA and Chicago and world traveled and worked on some of the largest campaigns in the world. But I also can go eat fried chicken and green beans and sit in the, you know, on the dock with my fishing pole and like have a beer with anybody. And I hope, and I think that that comes across that there's an authenticity and a realness there.
1: So is that like a worldly guy next door beer-drinking-fishing buddy?
0: Maybe. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I (laughs) you know, like, some people think of me as bougie, and then some people think of me as a southern redneck. So, like, (laughs) I don't— Bougie redneck? I I don't know. I guess. Uh, Okay. You know, but I mean, but I mean, I get like 500— I don't know how many DMs I get a week, and I can't keep up with them anymore. My assistant can barely keep up with them. Like, we try to respond to the ones, but, you know— I don't know. I think it just resonates on some level with people that I don't seem uh, made up or Mm. that I'm answering to anyone other than just whatever the hell I want to do.
1: Right. No corporate master to please. You just do what you
0: got to do. Yeah. I have a couple sponsors now, but I'm very particular (laughs) about those too. You know, like if they don't work, I don't talk about them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, we have an international audience from uh, from all over the world and there are people who are going to listen to this. Like, we don't know what it means to be Southern in the United States. So what are some Southern-isms, like edumacate us a little uh-huh. bit here. What, what does it mean to be Southern? Yeah,
0: I think if it's the right Southern, I think it's, there's the, <laughs> uh, I think there's a natural friendliness and ability to relate with anyone and like, I've never met a straight, like I'm kind of a extroverted introvert on some ways. I am truthfully, I mean, I can talk and do it. I can turn it on, but like, I'm not always like, you know, Mr. Chatterbox, like on my own, but I will say like in a discussion, like I never, I never walk into just, I think Southern charm or Southern things like that. I don't walk into every discussion with a cynicism and a chip on my shoulder. Like when I was in New York, and I'm just going to compare like, okay, north to south. Yeah. There's an edge to you in New York. And there's a, what are you trying to get out of me? You know, like a little, not every single person, but like, and right. I, this was in Manhattan. You know, there's a little bit of just that edge. Like I'm, I'm, you know, what are you? you couldn't possibly be that nice. You can't be, you can't be real, you know? And then, like, I just walk in discussion, like, I'm just, I'm just a dude, like, let's just, let's have a beer. Let's have, let's talk, you know, like, or, you know, what's going on and asking about family and asking about, like, it doesn't immediately become so intentional. And I think, you know, I think, in the South, there's a little bit of just, we don't have to have an end game in mind for this conversation or for this interaction. <laughs> like we could just be shooting the shit.
1: There's a, a general um, stereotype. People from the North talk fast, uh, always on the move. It's a little bit more transactional. What are you gonna do for me? What have you done for me lately? A career climbing in the whole rat race of things. And that's New York, the city that never sleeps. So right? everything's always open and you can get everything in a New York minute. We get that. And then the Southern stereotype is slower down home, uh, family dinners, let's talk, let's get together. And it's a different pace, there's a lot of y'alls uh bless your heart that kind of thing and there is such a thing as southern hospitality i've been to the carolinas before and there it's a little bit different people don't have their guard up they'll talk to you and it's, it's just a random conversation people from all walks of life we're talking about the good people you know some <laughs> not so good people but the good people they're like oh what do you do and you just have a conversation and you can talk to a stranger for 30 minutes and walk away and and just feel like wow i just really connected with somebody for a minute is, is that the southernness that you're talking about
0: yeah I mean, it's just not, it doesn't always have to have an agenda. And, you know, like you can let your hair down, you know, <laughs> unless you're going to like, you know, some Southern pageant or something. Like, <laughs> and then he gets real, <laughs> real serious in a hurry. That's yeah, a whole other, you know, <laughs> pageant, pageantzilla. Zilla. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, and look, though no, you're on, there's some fake Southern people too. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. With some some of the southern charm, a Charleston, you know, like and be a little <laughs> over the top, but I, you know, I I relate well to people. I feel like people relate to me once they get to know me. I mean, I think yeah. some of the things that can happen when you build a brand and you're doing things and you're out there, you can seem uh, we can all come off more unapproachable maybe than we are. But I think when people you know, come hang around myself or other people from the South. I think a lot of that stuff gets disarmed pretty quickly once they really, you know, get underneath the hood.
1: Well, let's let's transition into to personal brand. You mentioned it a couple of times. How do you define your personal brand? When did you start developing it?
0: I mean, you know, whatever you, you want to call it. I mean, your personal brand is your reputation and it's your digital reputation. It's what you're known for and social media has afforded this ability of amplification and reach and frequency to use media terms how many people see you how many times and you know when we lived in a world of mass media was the only way to be you know you had to be on tv you had to be a tv star uh you know 15 years ago 18 years ago Time's starting to all fly together, Chris. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and now with social media, you know, we have this ability to amplify and to be known and to share our credibility. And so mine is built around, you know, marketing and being a father and being a husband. And, you know, so there's a personal level and a business level. And I try to share both. I try to, you know, be authentic in my opinions, which I am, and but I'm also, you know, going to show you—I don't show you every crevice and every, you know, corner of my life, but I—there's nothing really hidden. It's it's all kind of there, and I'm not afraid to put it out there because I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. My wife would tell you all about them, but <laughs> but— but I want to leave a legacy and I want to help as many people as I can learn from what I've learned. And if I can have an impact on someone, I'd rather risk being embarrassed to make an impact and leave a legacy. So it's like if the price
1: of personal and professional embarrassment is the price you pay to make an impact in the world, you're, you're happy to pay it.
0: Yes, and I think that's a lot mm-hmm. of people get stuck and don't do, quote unquote, personal branding because, you know, that fear of judgment. Mm. I, I, I have a real blind spot with being judged. I mm-hmm. care, don't get me wrong. I mean, we all look in the mirror, we're all human, we all have blood. Like, I'll get offended, like, I'll be like, damn, like, I was stupid, or I wonder how to tell what people thought about that. But I think about right. it for like half a second, you know, like, I'll go, you know, and I just move on. I was born without a rear view mirror. It lives, it works, it's great for a lot of things. I'll admit it, it's difficult with others. I, I have to for I have to be more empathetic because most people don't have that gene. But it's enabled me, I think, to press forward because I'm just always f- facing, you know, like straight ahead.
1: What do you attribute that to? This ability to kind of set your own direction, know what your compass, your true north is something in your childhood, the way you raise uh, a community, uh, a mentor or something, how, how is it you're able to have that kind of healthy mindset?
0: Steve and Mary Linda, <laughs> that's my parents. You know, mm-hmm. they were there. They gave me what I needed. They gave me some of what I wanted, but they didn't try to to force me to do anything other than guide me towards healthy behaviors. And, you know, I think some parents today and some of my friends, you know, had heavy handed parents that were just too heavy handed. And my parents had a real deft touch of no, you know, they were at every game. They gave me, you know, put the opportunities in front of me. My dad would say, Hey dad, I mean, he would be direct with me. He was a military guy. He was in the air force. So it wasn't like I grew up with, you know, some, an easy, you know, time of it per se, but they, they had their own lives. My parents had their own lives. My dad played in a band this whole my whole life, and they they didn't try to make my life theirs, but they mm-hmm. guided me towards the right things and course corrected me when needed. but they let me develop my own talents and skills and never overjudged me when it went off the rails.
1: That does sound like a pretty good recipe,
0: yeah, and that's what I'm trying to do with my kids like I've got four boys. Mm and, you know, trying to do the same thing. It's a its a delicate balance because, you, you know, trying to guide and say you do these things and knowing when they have a skill and then they don't necessarily want to work hard enough for it, you know, and I won't tolerate that they don't want to work hard for it, but I will allow them to make decisions if it's based on, you know, something that really makes sense. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to know that exact moment. It was why I respect my parents more now, you know, than, you know, having that and they weren't perfect either, but it's a it's a really difficult balance. But I think if it's guided in the right premise and the right, I'm not gonna live my life through them.
1: I think that's a mistake a lot of parents make that and I I I think it was some yogi that I heard say this. It's like Your children's lives are for them to live. Stop trying to punish them for the mistakes you've made. Cause we're trying to now rectify that. Like you didn't take piano lessons. Well, now you have the kids doing piano. Uh, You didn't go to graduate school. Now it's their thing. It's like, you're trying to correct for those mistakes. And my my feeling, and it seems like it's your parents and yours as well, is you got your shot. Let them have their shot, whatever they want to do. Let them do their thing. And it's a dance for sure, between too much discipline and control. Versus complete freedom and autonomy because that could lead to chaos too. Yeah, and and you're you're constantly pushing and pulling. Sometimes, okay, we got to ease up on the control part and the discipline because this person's got it and they need to let loose a little bit. Versus one who's like a free spirit, but like a little discipline could really help you get to where you want to be.
0: It's personalized for sure.
1: Yes, it is. <laughs> and it's isn't it wild that same parents, same DNA, same gene pool, same environment for different human beings
0: completely? Totally hundred totally like percent. That different. goes
1: against nurture and nature. It's like, it's the same nature, <laughs> same nurture, but they're just going to be who they're going to be. That's right. We're running out of time. I want to ask you this, and you might need a minute or two to think about it, but I want to get Ryan's three rules for living a good life. Since we're talking about raising people, but the things that you've learned reflected on, if I want to live a good life, and you get to find it any which way you want, success, happiness, a good relationships, whatever you want, three rules
0: number one our only finite resource is time we can always make more money we can always meet more people we can always do more things but we can't make any more time time were money and money were time we'd all have the same amount (laughs) but we don't because we don't know so time is limited so i i will respect you but you don't, I don't let anyone control my time. My whole, and my drive and what I do and why I do it is because I value my time. And I think if you recognize that, it'll change your life when you really put, wrap your head around. It doesn't mean that you'll never work for someone else, by the way. It, it's, not, it's not meant to be like the entrepreneur's code. You know, it's more, okay, time is fleeting. Time is limited, and you need to recognize that. A lot of people don't. And so that's a big one. Um, And so, look, I'm guided by freedom. You know, like people say, well, man, you've done pretty well. Like I saw you in that car and all that. And like, yeah, I got nice things. I'm guided by wanting to control my time. The more money I make, the more freedom I have, not the more things I can buy, you know. And so, control your time. Recognize that yep. it's finite. I lived my whole 20s and early 30s around being a very selfish individual, a very self-centered person that I didn't rely on a lot of other people. Like, I just trailblazed, you know? And at a certain time, it, it flipped on me and realized that the more you give, the more you get. Mm. And that has never been... You know, some of these things become very cliche. You see everybody posting quotes on them. But when you live 46 years like I have, you start to experience these things and you start to gain wisdom. And there's a lot of truth to that notion and it will pay itself. Uh, Pay it forward, baby. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then family's everything. You know, like... It doesn't, and I, I'm talking about like your most intermediate family, you know, like, I, you know, there's cousins and all those things. There's a those are great and aunt's and uncle's and all, that's fine. But you're blessed with one family. And if you nurture that and protect that and guide that, that's another resource that can't be replaced. And I have probably as much empathy for people that don't have close family than I do anything else. I mean, I know a lot of really wealthy people that have no family and Mm. it's sad. And if you um, you need to appreciate that, I don't think enough people do. So it sounds to me
1: like they're financially wealthy, but probably emotionally bankrupt.
0: Yeah, 100%. Mm.
1: Because
0: they're not sharing it with anyone else. Right. That's the thing that you, that's the thing at the end of the day, like, you know when all these things you get wrapped up in like the cliche, like you know like it did it mean anything if were you truly happy if you didn't share it with somebody else?
1: I heard a uh, I think it was a podcast on this. I think it was on radio lab, and it says, there's this notion, and it's a popular idea that money can't buy happiness. Well, we conducted a science experiment that says the opposite: money can buy happiness, but it's not what you think. It's when you actually give the money away to some other people to help them out, whether you know them or not. It doesn't matter. So the, it's like when you, when you are giving five bucks and you spend it, you, it's a diminishing return. Every time you spend that, it gets you get a little less joy each time. When you buy enough cars, whatever it is that you want to buy, your indulgence, not as joyful. But when you give it to other people, just the act of giving is a, such a wonderful feeling. So you talked about like you're a driven person. You talked about, at least in your bio, going from, from zero to eight figures in four years. And all of that was to do two things for you, as far as I could tell right now. Number one, to buy back your time, to have the freedom to choose to do what you want, when you want, with who you want. And number two is to be able to use that money to help and support and, and love on the people that you care the most about, your, your immediate family, or those that you want to aid in this life. Is there another reason, or those two pretty good reasons?
0: That's hundred percent it. Like, mm. and you know, if you ask my friends, and if I died tomorrow, I know what they would say. I have all. I'm very generous, and I p- always pick up the tab secretly. Like I, I'm that guy because not because I'm trying to brag or show off. It's because I take great joy in being able to do that, and it, and it mean very little to my bottom line, but make someone else's day. And you know, like, and so it's it's exactly that. And things with family too. Like, you know, nothing brings more joy than, you know, being able to take your family where you want to go and get away when you need to do it and do those things. And it's but it's still it still comes back to those fundamental things of, you know, like freedom and, and choice, the choice and ability to do that. It's a privilege.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm gonna ask you before we go, one serious question and one not serious question at all. Okay. I think you mentioned you're forty eight i'm fifty one by the way, so I'm gonna ask you this question. you're on an airplane, you're traveling for business, and the 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 captain makes an announcement you're not gonna make it. this plane's going down. What are your last thoughts before you you die
0: I think if I've got everything in 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 the order that I had intended and i'd I'd like to think that at this stage I'm close to that uh if not there, you know. I'm probably thinking that this would make a radical story and, and that, you know what, I'd rather that than, than I died on my deathbed and suffered, you know, over six months with terminal cancer. Like, that sounds pretty fucking radical. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I laugh
1: not because we're talking about such a morbid thing, but I feel like the marketer's like, I still got one more story to tell. This is the last story. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a good yeah. story to
0: me. I mean, look, I'm obviously sitting mm-hmm. there probably praying and like yeah. you doing things that we're nationally doing. But I think in the back of my head, I'm I would have some semblance of, this is the way it was supposed to go out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you lived a good life. You did what you could in the time you had. Your house is in order and you can go, you can go down with peace.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't okay. be wrong. I mean, I'm sure you're scared is all get out. And it's, right. there's a lot of fear, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'd have a wink of cynicism that this is kind of how it was meant to be. Mm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very good. Last question for you, the not so serious question is, I just want you to say whatever's on the top of your mind. Don't overthink this one. What's a guilty pleasure you have? that you're not afraid to admit?
0: <laughs> oh, I have several. I mean, I dr- <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say I'm a Swiftie. No. No, okay. Like I mean, I'm having a country music guy. That's not really a guilty pleasure yeah. anymore. That's pop music these days. I mean, right. I, I, energy drinks and Bud Light Next. <laughs> <laughs> What's your
1: favorite energy drink?
0: Uh, one that is in a can. <laughs> you don't care? <laughs> I don't care. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, if it's got caffeine in it, I'll drink it. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. So, uh, energy drinks and, uh, you know, I'll, I've been known to drink one to 20 Bud Light next. They're the only <laughs> carb-free beer. And, <laughs> you know, right. even with their little snafu and everybody not liking Bud Light for a little while, uh, right. they're the only one that makes a total carb-free beer. And so mm-hmm. if I'm going to have 15 of them on the lake on a Saturday, it's going to be those because, you know, I got to keep this girlish figure in order. <laughs> <laughs> all six, five, you're Southern, but all you don't want to be a big five, Southern guy. 70. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Uh, and I get shit from it, from everybody at my lake. Uh, we have a houseboat on at the lake and yeah. everybody gives me crap because I'm lurking these Bud Light necks and, but there you have it.
1: Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Ryan. I've been spending the last hour talking to Ryan. He's the host of the number one marketing business podcast on iTunes called The Radcast. He also has an agency called Radical um, running an eight-figure business. Uh, How do people get in touch with you if they want to follow up with you?
0: Yeah, I'm at Ryan Alford, uh, R-Y-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D on all the social media platforms. You'll see the check next to my name on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. I had it before you could buy it. (laughs) Nice. Well done. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. I am Ryan Alford, and you're listening to The Future.
2: Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new, insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Stuart Schuster. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode, and thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by reviewing and rating our show on Apple Podcasts. It will help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me?